This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us today for the second quarter update of our Ned Group Investments Balance Fund. My name is David Levinson. I'm an investment analyst on the Best of Breed team here at Ned Group Investments, and I'm joined today by Ian Power, CIO at Truffle Asset Management, and Portfolio Manager of the Ned Group Investments Balance Fund. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, David. Yes, and thanks for having me today. Excellent. Thank you. Some quick context before I hand over to Ian. As of yesterday's close, the fund has returned just north of 4% year-to-date, which is a 6% relative outperformance of the category peer group. The fund has held up superbly through multiple cycles, protecting on the downside, as we saw during March in the first quarter of this year, and participating during more bullish market conditions as well. I think what will become clear over the course of the presentation is the way the fund has been able to adjust with, with relative speed as and when news emerges. This is testament to Ian and the team at Truffle and the ability to identify opportunities and maneuver effectively through all market cycles. But of course, who better to chat about the fund than Ian himself? So I'd now like to hand over to Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. Great, thanks. Thanks, David. And uh, good afternoon to everyone, wherever you are in Chile, Joburg. I'm going to go straight into the presentation. Okay, so I think, first of all, to give you, I guess, a bit of a background insofar as how we see in the world at the moment, I've just got a few of the key points in terms of the way we are seeing the evolution of the, I guess, the COVID pandemic, but in addition, the impact on the broader economy, uh, together with some implications for, for stock markets. So I think the first point to make is that there's a lot of data which certainly suggesting that the global economy is is in a recovery mode, but I think it's important to, to note that it's an uneven recovery. So there, there are some geographies which, you know, seem to be on a much stronger footing in terms of having dealt with the pandemic and the crisis, and then others uh, perhaps which are in a bit of a muddle um, and not really able to, I guess, uh, accelerate to the extent that they can open up the economy like perhaps some of the Asian countries have been able to do. But there's certainly a lot of data which is suggesting that the world is getting better and as the economy opens up, you know, economic activity starting to resume. The next point to make is that policymakers have certainly done whatever it takes to, to mitigate the damage of the pandemic, and that's really taken the form of massive monetary and fiscal stimulus. And a consequence of that is you've seen significant expansion in central bank balance sheets around the world. So central banks are not only buying fixed income instruments to ensure liquidity in the market, but they're also buying equity um, instruments in the market. I think the second point is probably quite an important one because we were quite surprised at the speed of the recovery in, in asset prices. And I think given the extent that the global economy is now starting to recover, even if it is going to be a little bit bumpy, this now increases the risk of a policy error. So what does that mean? It just means that the chances of bubbles are rising because economic activity is coming back online and you've got maximum stimulus in terms of interest rates, which are at zero, and you've got you know $10 trillion of fiscal stimulus, which has been injected into, into the economy. So our, our base case of this gradual but improving global economy, we think is uh, certainly on track, but 
unfortunately, we think the second half of the year is likely to see some volatility, really because of the next two points. The first one is we're expecting second wave of infections as Northern Hemisphere winter approaches. In addition to that, the United States seems to be confused in terms of uh, their own policy and uh, their infections are really spiraling. So I think the probability for volatility as a consequence of that as we go into the autumn and uh, winter is going to, to rise. And then also as economies just naturally open up, infections are also going to rise. So depending on the, the quality of the social distancing and the, the process of sanitizing and staying uh, healthy, uh, is really going to drive the extent to which we're going to see these infections spike. The other point to mention is that from an emerging market perspective, um, not all emerging markets are equal. So some of the Eastern European uh, emerging markets and Asian emerging markets have done a much better job of controlling COVID uh, and certainly have uh, seemed to have that under control. Whereas uh, Latin Sub-Saharan Africa, particularly South Africa, are in a particularly poor position with regards to dealing with the, the virus. But on top of that, our fiscal position is such that we do not have the fiscal firepower to support our economy like some of these other more developed EMs and some of the big DMs are able to. So only a vaccine will really provide some element of certainty to the extent of a sustainable uh, recovery. So from, a, from an overall perspective, we expect that there's a much higher probability of the rest of the world recovering faster from uh, COVID to pre-COVID levels than South Africa and perhaps uh, Latin America and some other countries are likely to do. So what have we done in the portfolio? So at the moment, the US equity market has had a significant uh, rally off its lows, and we feel that that market still looks expensive, particularly in light of when one looks at multiples or ratings uh, well above long-term median, and you've got earnings bases which are particularly high. Now, one could argue that because interest rates are very, very low, this provides multiples the opportunity to expand but I think as and when economies start to recover, I think it's unlikely that interest rates will stay at zero for indefinitely, which means that's going to be a headwind for equities. From a South African equity market, if we exclude the global shares like Naspers and um, Richemont, certainly local stocks optically look cheap. So when you look at PEs, when you look at price to books, you know, you can certainly see some value, but the problem is we need earnings growth. And I think when we talk to a lot of SA corporates, the feedback that we're getting from them is it's going to take many years. First Rand, for example, was telling us they think it might take up to four years to get back to earnings at pre-COVID levels. So there's a long, hard slog for the SA economy. And remember, we were in a difficult position prior to COVID uh, being in a technical recession. And I think what COVID has now done is really put our fiscal position, which I'll chat to a little bit later, in a very dire position. So, so how did we try and take advantage of what we're seeing around the world in terms of the slow, uneven, but certainly steady recovery? And we felt that it was certainly a better bet to put capital into some of the cheap global cyclical counters versus betting on a lot of the SA consumer interest rate cyclical businesses, which 
you know, typically what you would expect when, when economic growth accelerates, emerging markets also do well, and it's those consumer interest uh, rate sensitive businesses at that time of the cycle which also do well. But at this stage of the cycle, we think South Africa, from a local consumer facing interest rate sensitive opportunity set, they are going to struggle to get earnings back to levels of 2019. So feeling much more comfortable to be buying into the big diversified miners. We've been holding gold positions, as you know, um, our platinum mining companies. We bought some Sasol. We've got some British American tobacco. We've also got some BP Petrobras financials. We also think is another way to play this. So from a global perspective, we've picked up a basket of very cheap financials trading at big discounts to the underlying uh, NAVs and then healthcare, you know, solid growth from a lot of these businesses, double digit earnings growth in dollars. And then some of our tech businesses we think should be able to continue to grow, being the likes of a NetEase, Naspass, Baidu, and then Vivendi. So I think to the extent that we can see earnings progression for these global businesses supported by decent companies with solid balance sheets, margins of safety in terms of their valuations. We think that that's a much better bet than rather backing some of the South African focused shares, which optically may look cheap, but we think it's going to take many years before their earnings recover to the extent of what we saw last year. And then just finally, South Africa needs decisive fiscal intervention to really stave off a debt and financial crisis. What COVID has done has jacked up our debt to GDP to levels which are not sustainable. And ultimately, if we don't accelerate the fiscal interventions, which the finance minister has spoken about, particularly on, on reducing government expenditure, we are going to be facing a debt crisis in the next two years. So I think there are some there's some big decisions that need to be made in SA. And from our perspective at a portfolio level, we can see good value in some decent quality businesses, which just happen to be listed in South Africa and earn most of their earnings from offshore. Valuations of these businesses are not particularly expensive, and we see their earnings getting a benefit from the recovering global economy. So hence, you know, I've given you a sense in terms of some of these sectors where we have been focusing some of our capital allocation and then an example of some of the businesses which we hold. From a performance point of view, the fund has done well. It's, it's delivered top decile performance over many, many years, uh, certainly over the last year, which has been a particularly difficult year uh, with lots of volatility. I think the fund has, uh, has certainly delivered with a return of just over 10% versus the ASISA category average of delivered just over one. And then I think if you look at the longer term returns, even though, you know, they're certainly not what we used to in the sense of double digit returns, uh, they are at least approaching the inflation levels to the extent that, you know, they give the ability to, or we have generated the returns to at least try and match inflation over the last couple of years. But clearly it has been a difficult time for SA uh, risk assets. And one can see that to the extent that the ASISA category average over three and five years has not managed to generate a 4% return. So I think the fund well positioned in terms of some of the opportunities that we've identified. We are nimble and we are small. So as Dave said earlier, we're able to take advantage of volatility. And that's the one thing that we think we're going to see quite a lot of is volatility. And uh, volatility for us equals alpha opportunities. 
So just to maybe sketch the track record uh, in a different way from a risk return perspective, we're showing you the fund versus the five largest high equity funds in the industry. And you can just get a sense of the respective returns and you can see the level of return that we've managed to generate vis-a-vis -vis the risk compared to many, many other managers. So I think it is very difficult for big managers with big funds to compete and be able to do some of the things that a smaller manager like we can, certainly from a fund perspective. You know, the fund is able to take advantage of opportunities during the COVID crisis. To give an example, Capitec was sold down 60% over two days. We were able to deploy almost one and a half percent of the fund's capital in a matter of an afternoon. And, you know, then about two weeks later, the stock then is up 60, 70% back to a thousand rand. So I think if you're running a big, big fund, it's very difficult to change the portfolio quickly, certainly taking into account changes in terms of the data flow. And then secondly, you can't take advantage of some of the opportunities that a smaller fund can. So I think this slide really just, you know, focusing one's attention on the fact that we can deliver uh, better returns than some of these bigger funds um, and certainly not take any additional risk doing it. Just from a performance point of view, the attribution, you'll be aware that we have had some precious metals and PGM positions in the portfolio for quite some time. And you can see Sabanya making it as the top contributor, but then Parler Convertible Bond also coming in position number five, contributing another 1% to the fund's overall performance. NASPAS and British American Tobacco both have done well for us, both quality big businesses. We still hold both in the portfolio, both not expensively priced, notwithstanding their, their recent share price outperformance. The fourth biggest contributor was a first rand dollar denominated bond, which we bought, giving us a yield of about 6.7% when we purchased it in US dollars. And uh, that has also added quite nicely to the return of the portfolio. Just in terms of the detractors, the detractors mostly are locally facing businesses as one would expect, given what COVID has brought on or wrought on the South African interest rate sensitive space and largely some of the big banks. And we've chosen to hold some of our domestic exposure through the big banks, first of all, because they're big solid businesses. We're not worried about any of their uh, solvency in so far as going under and they are trading at discounts to their NAVs. So notwithstanding the price underperformance, we continue to hold them as a call option on uh, either a vaccine or an improvement in the South African underlying economic fundamentals. But the fund very much focused on those offshore positions. So if I just move to the wagon wheel to give you a sense of how the fund exposure uh, looks. First of all, we've got net equity exposure of around about 62% because we've got some hedges in place on the S&P 500, which we've reloaded. The actual physical underlying foreign equity you can see is around about 20%. But from a local equity perspective, what you can see on the slide is there's 13% in foreign JSC listed companies, and that would be the likes of your NASPAS uh, process as well as British American Tobacco. Mining and resources making up 19% of the fund and then 10% in domestic industrials where we've chosen businesses with relatively low leverage, strong business models where we think they are able to take market share in a shrinking SA economy. 
So the one thing that we, having lived through many economic cycles, when you go through a period of sustained economic stress, the smaller businesses are the ones that tend to fail. They don't have the balance sheets or the scale to defend against the big businesses. And you know, big businesses can take market share. And I think that's one of the themes in the portfolio is to you know, make sure that we've got quality companies with good assets or businesses, which are not or don't have excessive leverage and where we think that those business models will enable them to take market share from their peers. So our SA facing exposure um, is around about 17%, but of that 17% in these uh, domestic industrials, a portion of those are also second derivative RAND hedge companies like an Astral, which is a, which is a chicken producer. Then we've got 11% in domestic bonds, we have recently reduced or, or sold all the duration that we've had. Rates have subsequently kicked up by about 60 basis points. We think the risks now to our rates are starting to move to the upside, particularly if we don't get the decisive intervention from a fiscal perspective that we think the economy needs to put us onto a sustainable footing. So we've been continuing to focus on the shorter end of the, of the curve in terms of uh, low duration, and you can also see we've got around about 6% in domestic cash. We picked up a small proportion of property. We've pushed it up to 4% in the fund. We are not rampantly bullish on property at all. We still think fundamentals are particularly negative, but on a stock specific basis, there's some decent quality businesses which were trading at uh, bargain basement prices. So we've put a bit of exposure in place and subsequently some of those prices have already started to move quite nicely. So from a total offshore perspective, the fund has got 64% of its assets exposed offshore. And I think the last point to mention is that there's a value to having liquidity in your portfolio. I think with the high levels of uncertainty that we've got, not only just in South Africa, but in the world, there's a big value that one can attribute to having liquidity in your portfolio. In other words, the ability to change when the facts change or to change the portfolio. So the companies that we focused on and invested in are typically bigger businesses that have liquidity, that if something happens, if South Africa looks as though we can't make the changes that we need to, I can sell some of these SA facing names and then change the portfolio. But as we stand, that's what we think is uh, best from a diversification point of view and from a risk return point of view. So certainly we think we've got enough in the portfolio to deliver uh, decent returns. And as I said, a focus on global cyclicals and higher quality offshore earners as opposed to the SA earners. So just to summarize, the portfolio has got an overweight position in global cyclicals to take advantage of what we see as a slow but uneven global recovery. High quality RAND head shares are offering good value, so one doesn't have to sacrifice value to, to buy some of these good quality businesses. We think that SA-focused companies are going to continue to struggle. And yes, valuations are looking cheaper, but one has to be careful potentially of some of these value traps. Very important to avoid highly leveraged businesses and weak businesses. If the economy has to go back into some sort of lockdown and you've got too much leverage, we've seen into go bankrupt. We've seen a lot of other businesses potentially have to raise capital and probably will have to raise capital. So the businesses that we've got, very, very uh, well capitalized and not high leverage with strong business models. Our high offshore exposure, given our longer term concerns around the fiscal position of the country is going to remain. So we have our maximum offshore exposure. 
We are underweight US equity and have a bit of a defensive positioning in so far as our hedges and some offshore cash and bonds. And then from a stock specific perspective, we are looking at the property sector as a way of trying to buy some very cheap optionality on a potential vaccine announcement or, or an SA Inc recovery where you've had many of these shares which have been bombed out. And to give you a little example, a business like Hyprop, which owns some very, very good assets, which we think, you know, certainly have long uh, lifespans and durations insofar as Canal Walk, the Hyde Park Center, just to name two. And the only issue is that they had a little bit too much gearing on their balance sheet, so the share price is down 90%. They won't have to raise, raise capital, but they're probably not going to pay a distribution for two years and things will normalize and we think there's some nice optionality in that. So we've put some tiny little positions in some of these almost call options, cheap call options on an SA improvement situation or potential announcement of a vaccine, which is likely to give uh, SA Inc. a bit of a run. Underweight duration, as I've said, we've sold most of our longer duration bonds, building up liquidity and staying at the shorter end of the yield curve. And then finally, just to say we expect volatility to remain high. This is good for us. We like volatility and we think it creates opportunities and gives us the advantage of using our nimbleness to outperform our larger peers. And then just maybe to end off with our long term track record relative to the peer group, one can just see the extent to which, you know, we have managed to generate, you know, industry beating returns over the, the longer term. Happy to take any questions if there's any coming on the line, Dave. You'll be happy to know. I usually have an arsenal of questions just in case we have a shy audience, but I don't think I'm going to need to dive into any of mine. We've had some really good questions come through. One actually just on the property side, which you, you briefly touched on, I think, since the question was posed. Yeah. One of the earlier ones was asking, and there was a slide on this, talking to the size of the fund. And the question is, can you please give examples of where the fund is used at size advantage relative to the big peers who are less nimble? An example you gave was Capitech, and off the top of my head, I know you managed to navigate the Sassel sort of drama quite well. Yep. Are there any other examples of where your nimbleness has paid off in the last quarter? So there's quite a few. So I think, you know, Sassel is one, Capitech is another one. The other area would have been Harmony, which is a stock that we were building a position into the beginning of sort of six, eight weeks ago, 54 Rand a share. We were able to build quite a big position quite quickly in the portfolio. The stock has you know, subsequently doubled. Maybe another example would also be from some of the offshore positions which we were able to buy. We bought some bigger positions in some of the offshore financials. They had quite a nice run. They sort of jumped 25, 30% and we were able to pull those positions back and take quite a lot of profits quite, quite quickly. So I think, you know, the, the opportunities are there, there are many opportunities, both in fixed income from a stock selection point of view, to the extent that we can buy issues from some of the companies or banks where we can put bigger chunks of the portfolio into these issues because we are we are much smaller and the fund is much smaller. And similarly, from an equity point of view, we can do the same. And even from a property point of view, we've got a few what we think you know, really quality little property companies, some of them which are not really, they don't have assets in South Africa, they just happen to be listed here. Uh, two of them would be Stenprop, another one would be Sirius, and another one would be Investec Australia. And you would be hard pressed to build a meaningful position in those three property counters 
in a bigger fund. So I think the opportunities not only in taking advantage of volatility, but also in terms of the size and the ability to get bigger weightings of, you know, some assets which perhaps bigger funds can't can't replicate in their own portfolios. Thanks very much, Ian. And we've actually got quite a few questions. I'm going to see if I can morph it into one around global markets and where opportunity is, because you touched on the expensiveness of, of US equities at the moment. So maybe get a sense of your view in terms of where Europe might be from a value proposition. And I know you've also added, I believe, an EM index recently in the last month or so yeah. as well. So I think, first of all, the US, if one just looks at their valuation, so the multiples of the S&P 500 are you know, comfortably above one standard deviation of the long-term median, and you've got earnings bases which are also uh, historically high, and you are going into an election, um, you know, at the end of the year. So I mean, we think valuation, margins, probability of higher tax rates given the fiscal deficit and a potential democratic president, all of these factors we think which suggest that you should have a little bit of caution in terms of whatever that risk exposure is that you have in the US. And, you know, the other point I would make is that there are examples of, of animal spirits which are running high in some of these companies. And, you know, one of the companies which we continually follow is Tesla. I'm sure everyone has seen, you know, Tesla share price now $1,300 a share. Elon Musk, the sixth wealthiest guy in the world. And, you know, the market cap of Tesla is now bigger than Coke. It's bigger than Exxon, bigger than a whole host of other companies. And yet they only make 400,000 cars a year. So, I mean, maybe to put it another way, Tesla's market cap is three times the size of Naspass and they make 400,000 cars. So I think there's many, many signs of irrational exuberance that is starting to seep into some of those hopes and dream stocks. And, you know, that's typically the time when we think you should start to become a little bit more cautious. Now, from a European perspective, uh, Europe is a big open economy. You know, Europe or certainly Germany has one of the biggest trade surpluses in the world. They are they manufacture a lot of high tech machinery for China and the rest of the world. And to the extent that China has managed to deal with the crisis from a COVID perspective and is starting to improve and get back to pre-COVID levels, that bodes well for some of those economies. Unfortunately, the other problem for some of the European economies is tourism is a massive, massive contributor to some of these countries. You know, if you just take France in particular. So I think that element of growth is going to take much longer to return. And I think depending on the economy, whether you are in Ibiza or you are in Dusseldorf, there are different drivers for those localized economies, but certainly there are some opportunities from a European perspective. And one of the opportunities that we picked up was a business called Vivendi. Vivendi's biggest asset is a business called the United Music Group, which is effective a licensing and distribution business for musical artists around the world. So if you ever listen to U2, if you listen to Taylor Swift, if you listen to Bee Gees, Elton John, Rolling Stones, Vivendi gets a licensing fee every time you play a tune through Apple Music or through Spotify. And I think, you know, you're really able to buy this business at a very attractive price at a time when, you know, people were selling quality businesses uh, cheaply. So I think, you know, there are definitely a lot of opportunities, but they are more centered outside the U.S., and more towards the emerging markets, European markets, um, where asset prices are much cheaper 
and where the risk of earnings is certainly not as high as what we feel in the US. Okay, great. Thanks, Ian. I am a little bit aware of time, but I do want to ask one more question before we close out. It's um, actually two questions from the audience, which kind of indirectly tie into one another. The first is, how are you using downside protection in the current environment? And the second is around commodity prices, because I know you have played in the platinum space a fair bit and you do hold some gold. And I imagine that's also a defensive position. So maybe very briefly, you could go through those two. Okay, so how are we thinking about downside protection? So the first thing one can do is you can change your asset allocation. We haven't made a meaningful change to our asset allocation yet, but what we have done is we've used uh, synthetic protection through some puts on the S&P 500. So we've put about 7% protection in the fund on the S&P 500. We are also in the steps of looking at putting some collars on some of our NASPAS exposure. NASPAS has done phenomenally well uh, year to date on the back of what's happened with Tencent. And, you know, we would like to sterilize and lock in some of that with a collar. So we're in the process of doing that. And then I think, you know, the other areas of, of protecting uh, capital on the fixed income side is to make sure you don't have long duration assets, because if we do have a shock, or a South African-centric shock, equities go down, but so do bonds, as we saw you know, during COVID. So I think to have cash shorter duration is better. And then finally, as you said, some gold, an uncorrelated asset, you know, almost you know, insurance in another way. And some of the gold shares are not particularly expensive. We've been holding them for quite some time. We think you know, structurally, it's a nice thing to have in the portfolio particularly as central banks continue to print money around the world and those balance sheets just balloon. Um, a lot of the drivers for gold are all starting to look you know, pretty positive. So, you know, finally, from a commodity price point of view, just your question, you know, commodities benefiting, commodity prices benefiting from the improved delta of global growth, but particularly China. China, who you know is one of the biggest consumers of many commodities, and they are back to pre-COVID levels of manufacturing production and importing their various commodities. So that's provided a nice underpin in terms of the basket price for many of our commodity producers. And obviously they are selling their products in dollars and are nice rand hedge businesses. And all of those businesses have got pretty good balance sheets. None of them have excessive leverage. And, you know, the free cash flow yields of many of those businesses still look reasonably attractive, especially when one compares them to many of the SA-focused businesses, which are in a very difficult environment. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Ian. I'm afraid we do have to call it a time for today. And I think given what we've heard, I'm sure our incumbent investors and future investors will feel great comfort in, in the management of the fund. So thanks again for joining us today, Ian. Thanks, David. And thank you, everyone, for logging in. Sure thing. And for those that have any further questions regarding the Ned Group Investments Balance Fund, please do get in touch with your Ned Group Investments representative who will happily assist you. And of course, this recording, like all our others, will be made available uh, to yourselves and your clients. And please join us again tomorrow at 10 a.m., where we will have Omri Thomas reporting back on the Opportunity Fund. And then being a Friday, our, our afternoon call will be at 2 p.m. with Rashad Tayob presenting on the Ned Group Investments Flex Flexible Income Fund. So for myself, Ian, and my colleagues in Negroup Investments, thanks again for joining us today and take care. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. 
For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.